What's up, everyone? I'm out of studio for this episode and in another location, so uh, you might notice a little bit of background noise and maybe uh, some lower audio quality. Uh, so I just want to give you guys a little heads up. That's why uh, the audio may not be the greatest for this, but uh, thanks for listening and hope you enjoy this episode. everyone we are back with that's my take i'm chris and we're back this week with wayne green so how you been been well been well it's uh the weather's been beautiful and uh lord has blessed us sounds like your garden's doing pretty well it's doing very well it uh we've already been uh, getting much produce out of it so we're enjoying that yeah i've i've been trying to past few years trying to grow a garden and i just can't seem to hardly get much stuff to grow so but you guys seem to have a really nice garden. Well, we we definitely work at it. There's days that we're spending, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. It's a sizable garden, but um, just simply because we want to keep it as clean as possible. And and uh, you don't, the weeds, they try to come in, so you got to work at it pretty hard. And uh, so, uh, but the point is we really try to have just good quality food. And it pays off when you have a good harvest afterwards, too. Oh, Yes. Yeah, it's really nice, especially uh, when you get the opportunity to go out there and pick a bunch of raspberries or something and uh, have a little uh, raspberry and ice cream or maybe a shortcake of some sort. Yeah, it's very good. And we're also, uh, uh, you know, we enjoy the the, the other stuff too, the the cabbage family of all sorts and uh, peas of various types and all the other typical garden stuff. Because I've got, I think the only thing I have now is a strawberry plant, and it seems to grow bigger and bigger every year. But it's nice going out and picking strawberries, throwing them in a smoothie, and yes, yes, and we've, we've, uh, we're we're kind of heavy into the raspberries, and they look very good this year, so we're pretty happy about that too. So, yep, it's been a, been a good year so far. Uh, we're hoping for a little more rain. We haven't been having to water quite a bit, but that's okay. It's uh, it's if that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. Yep. So so let's go ahead and get into what our uh, content is today. So last week we talked about, um, we went over creation and talked about, um, I guess, like some of the apologetics of creation and talked about the theory of evolution. And you had found like a flyer on like intelligent design that you wanted to go over kind of to review yeah. from last week. This is a quick reference guide, and it's by Ron Rhodes. Uh, who is uh, is very well known throughout Christian circles, and uh, Ron has put together a very concise and precise um, document here. And I've read a lot of this information elsewhere also, but uh, but it's nice to have it in a format that is that you can easily get your hands around. And one of the things that uh, Ron talks about, <clears throat> first of all, is recognizing the signs of intelligence. And he said that we become, as a human, you know, our society, or as human beings, we become very adept at being able to recognize them. And uh, I mean, for instance, uh, that he that he gives here is that when you go out, uh, 
in South Dakota and you see four presidents that are up there and, and that it's obvious that those four presidents were put there by intelligent design. Or if you go to, to the same area, but a, a crazy horse or any statue or anything like this, you can tell that's that didn't just happen, so to speak. And uh, so that's one of the things he talked about, too, that um, other examples are crime scene investigators. You know, they uh, look for intentionality of the crimes. Um, insurance investigators look for clues of intentional fraud. And uh, archaeologists, of course, is another one. Uh, and to touch on that, I was watching a show one night on PBS, and they showed up in the uh, Nova Scotia area where the, a lot of the uh, people had came in from the Scandinavian countries at one time and built sod huts. And uh, they said that they could tell that they were there by intelligent design because when they took the sod that was there at that time and rolled it back, they said it took an expert eye. They were pretty arrogant about that. But they could see this design in the dirt. And they said, therefore, that little bit of a design meant intelligent life had to do that. I don't know if you can get much more minimal than that when it comes to intelligent design. And then you then they take a look at the complexity of, of all we see and do and uh, on a, around us, and they say it wasn't by intelligent design, but that little bitty thing was. It just sounds like a lot of hypocrisy there in my mind is that uh, we want to attribute things like that to intelligent design, but when you're you know, talking about the, the creation itself, it is unbelievable. In fact, one of the things that he talks about uh, is the universe, how it's specifically designed for the Earth to be here. And uh, Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, has got a book, some, or maybe books out on that very issue also. Of if things weren't calculated at a very minute level, we would this Earth would not exist. And that includes distances from the sun, the moon, and various other things. And some planets seem to be the type of planets that actually stop the asteroids from hitting us. And to on on a typical basis, and then the um, the other thing he points out is the human eye. We still don't know how um, that exactly got would have gotten uh, evolved, since it is a very complex organism uh, within your own body. In fact, what he gets talking about is irreducible complexity. When things are so complex, but bottom line, if you if you if you take anything out, it fails. And see, one of the things that's used quite often is the mousetrap. You take a mousetrap, and you've got the base, you've got the 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 the, the swing the, the, on it, the the, the springs. Uh, you take any one of those out, and it you've reduced it, and it won't work. And so that's when he talks about irreducible complexity. Yeah, when you talk about uh, the design of the DNA, uh, he gets into that about what kind of a staggering amount of, uh, of design is within it and uh, what it can hold. And the, um, the aspect of the DNA is programmed at such a high level that um, we, if, we, if, if that little bit of programming 
that was done up in Nova Scotia could be seen. What do you do with with a with one DNA that can take uh, and be equivalent to like four sets of the uh, in uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, and um, or various other aspects of the DNA and the programming of at four different levels, as it's, we know at least that many. So I mean, now you're talking about a complexity here, and all of a sudden, all of this is supposed to be done by accident. And yet we don't accept that in insurance fraud and all these other things that, you know, something's going to look like it just happened. Or no, uh, somebody is really wanting not to believe. In fact, uh, <clears throat> I do think of a professor that was with, uh, I believe, Harvard. And uh, when he made the statement that, yeah, I know things look like design, but we can't let a divine foot in the door. Well, I mean, using the word divine, first of all, kind of surprised me because it could have been just a uh, some form of a uh, hollow deck, which they show on the uh, Star Trek. If you've ever watched that, where they all of a sudden make a totally different scene for these people to enter in. And uh, that but they don't think that uh, this has not been done already. In fact, I really think they steal that from the Bible. And uh, they also steal many other things like the replicator of making food from the Bible. And uh, because Christ made a lot of food for a lot of people out of a few fishes and loaves. So I think, uh, I think that they're really uh, being disingenuous if they don't start recognizing that at least by we're here by intelligent design. And then at that point, to try to say, who is the designer? And that's where it comes down to a worldview, too, because um, like I think we mentioned last week, we all have the same evidence that we're looking at. But as far as how we interpret it, it comes down to like our own worldview. So if you have the worldview through an evolutionary lens where you deny that God exists, then even though the evidence is right there pointing to it, you're going to refuse to accept that that's the case. The um, and one of the things when in, in talking about DNA again, the, <clears throat> um, let me correct what I said, is there's enough information, capacity in a single human cell to store the Encyclopedia Britannica, all 30 volumes, three to four times over. The informational capacity in a pinhead's volume of DNA is equivalent to a pile of paperback books 500 times as tall as the distance from the Earth to the Moon. And since where did the staggered amount of information similar to computer software code come from? Natural uh, evolution cannot explain it. Uh, computer programs do not overwrite themselves. Uh, this is written maybe before AI, you know, but uh, uh, even then I don't know what AI does as far as overwriting themselves. A, um, but a programmer is always involved. And... The same is true with the DNA. It has an ultimate programmer. And to think there's anything that, that is sophisticated, and as I was thinking about my friend Jay Siegert, who was here, who gave a strong description on how much programming you to go inside the DNA, it gets to the point of you just simply are, without your speechless, being able to explain it. It's just so intricate. And you think of a... Of a uh, of a being doing that—that's that's that's more um, that's more than our mind can truly comprehend, in my opinion. And I think that really kind of segues into 
like what our topic is today. So uh, last week we talked about creation um, through the sixth day, talking about um, the creation of everything except man, because we wanted to save like creation of man for its own its own episode, just because of everything that's involved in the creation of man. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, um, starting with uh, 27 to the end of the chapter. you mind reading that? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over other living things. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seeds, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seeds. To you it shall be for food. Also every beast on earth, to the and every bird there, and to everything that creeps on earth, in which there is life, I have given every herb, excuse me, every herb for food, and it was so. And then God saw that everything was made indeed was very good. So on the evening and the morning were the sixth day. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there, you know, when you really think about it. Of course, we we see the plurality that's there. Let us. Make man in our own image. And, you know, a lot of times people have, you know, kind of wonder what the us is. But, you know, I think many of us, have, first of all, it would definitely include Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, to not understand that we can't describe in the terms uh, God's being as the um, uh, something that we can put into our little box and say, we've got that taken care of and live our own lives, uh, you know, ex- not expecting uh, uh, judgment and, and living in impunity. It isn't going to happen because God tells us we will be held accountable. And, and notice the other thing it says in chapter 27, so let them have dominion over the fish in the sea. A lot of people have misinterpreted that. Yeah, God made it very clear that everything on earth was using plants for food, and some people saying having dominion over them was uh, to be do with them what they may. That is obviously not. You don't just go out and God never talked about cruelty in any way, and but He was talking about the fact that they would also eat this basically the same food we would eat, and so uh, going out and uh, abusing the uh, animals and this sort of thing and and. And our uh, environment is, isn't totally wrong. In fact, over in Revelation, it says that there will be people who will be held accountable for their destruction that they did to the, to the planet Earth. So it's, uh, it's something that God cares about very much. And as Christians, uh, I believe we need to recognize that we have to, um, have to take very good care and stewardship of what we have, and we don't uh, wind up abusing it, and I've heard some people, I've even heard some Christians make that statement, well, God will take care of everything, and that is not the message of the Bible. They would, if, if I would have been there and they'd said it, I would have asked them, why don't you follow Scripture? Scripture doesn't allow for us to be that type of a person. And so that's one of the things I, I think is pretty interesting, that that uh, that dominion 
sometimes also can be used in a word um, wrongly so too. And so it's kind of like I'm the I'm the head honcho, I'm the boss, I can do what I want. No, you're not the head honcho, God is. And he says take care of it appropriately. Yeah, I think I think just in this little short passage, there's a lot to unpack. And I think what you said, I think that's very antithetical to what the rest of the world is saying too, because um, like the culture we live in now is we've got to save the animals, we've got to save the trees at the expense of people. And they they almost like flip the script in the sense that the rest of nature has dominion over man. And so I think that's one of the areas where Satan, you know, like mocks God in the sense of um, uh, like doing something opposite from what God originally designed. And uh, yeah, I think something else that's important to point out too is in verse uh, 27, it's very clear that it says that God created male and female. And that's obviously a big hot topic nowadays about whether or not there's more than one gender and what is male, what is female. But um, in the and even I think there's people who go to Christianity and say that um, say, well, God made me this way. God made me a man in a woman's body and stuff. But when we read the creation account, you know, God is very purposeful in how He makes how He made the rest of creation and how He makes us. And so God. Uh, intended and made male and female for a specific purpose. And you'd mentioned um, about uh, being created created in God's image, and and it says that we'll make them in our likeness. And when we look at the image of God, I don't think we're necessarily created in the image of God in the sense that we're made to look like Him, like we got two arms and two legs like God does. It's very much more of a relational because it says, let's make man in our own image. And there is a relationship in the Godhead beforehand. So when you look at like the marriage structure, it's a representation and like an image of what the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. And uh, so when we look at the, you know, the creation of man, how we're made in God's image, God makes male, male and female for a specific purpose and for spe- specific roles um, to emulate his image. So when we go outside of that and say that, you know, you can change your gender or you can choose your gender, or that maybe God made a mistake and put you in the wrong body. Um, that's just completely against what Scripture says. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? <clears throat> have you ever thought of what it would have been like from an evolutionary standpoint that, first of all, we have some primates that would wind up having a more intelligent child, and that child would say male, and some other, either them or some other, primate would have a, a very intelligent child and it would be a female and they just so happen to mesh in the in their in their physical aspect to become who they are uh, that's stretching a lot of statistical probability way beyond possibility and uh, that's something that I've always wondered why they anybody would think that that could happen ever from an evolution standpoint. Uh, let's say it did happen, but how many years apart would that be? Would uh, would that be somewhere along the line of millions of years apart? So you'd have a man without a woman, uh, and would die off, and have to, it would that timing for, to come together at the very precise time would be uh, would be staggering to believe, unless somebody has put, you know, the, the male and female at the same time, at the same place as we, the Bible says God did. Yeah, and something I think that we can look into is uh, 
So when we talked a little bit about last week about like the gap theory and about gauge theory and different theories, and I think some of the, one of the arguments um, that that comes from that is like so when you read like Genesis at the very beginning, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then it kind of like starts back over describing the earth, and so you have the whole creation account through Genesis chapter one, but then you go back to Genesis chapter two and it kind of almost recounts it, and you have to kind of understand how they used to write back then too because. Initially, they didn't really have much of a written language. It was more of oral tradition. And so they had ways of teaching that uh, were more so, you know, so you can remember it and remember it with the details with great accuracy. And so they would give like a synopsis of something. Then they go a little more deeper into it and they'd almost retell the story in different ways so you can remember it. So when we see like the creation of man and then that, uh, then it ends with um, beginning of chapter two with the seventh day and with God resting. But then it goes back more in detailed starting in chapter, let's skip down to verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, it accounts more detailed into the creation of man. So it says, uh, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust uh, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. And and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, uh, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we're going to skip that next little section that's talking about kind of the location of um, the garden. But then it goes down to 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up his fle- uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from him, the man he had made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is the uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother to hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. So I think there's a lot to, you know, a lot in there that we could unpack from um, about the creation of man. But I think something else to point out too is this very the specifics of how man was created versus how woman was created. And like nowadays we have like you know like with the feminist movement, which is kind of funny that the feminists now aren't speaking out now how the men are competing in women's sports and stuff. That's kind of a feminist issue, and somehow the feminists aren't speaking out against that because it's kind of antithetical to the narrative. But we see that there's different roles between male and female, and uh, so this whole movement of you know women and men are equal in the sense of our roles are equal. Um, you know, we don't see that in the Bible that, you know, men men were created for a specific purpose, women created for a specific purpose. And now this and then so this whole movement of, you know, well women can be men and take the same roles as men, um, is we see that it's completely uh, con or contrary to what the Bible says. 
Yeah, and, and of course, you know, and it's interesting that it, uh, it, it's been said many times that man didn't take the, uh, the, 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 the woman out of the head of man to rule over him or the feet of man for man to, you know, in essence, walk on her, but, but out of his sight where they would walk together side by side. And, you know, uh, you go over to Proverbs chapter 31, <clears throat> and women were shown to be awfully good in business. And actually their husbands were, uh, you know, working in the gates of the nation of Israel and uh, taking care of the, you know, different gates meant different things going on within the, the specific area of Israel, a, a city, in fact. But the women were quite uh, uh, good at, at, you know, making a living for the both of them, and even though the men did have some of work in it. But it, it goes on to say that... Uh, the the Bible never ever gives us the opportunity to uh, be abusive in any way uh, to male to a female or female to male. In fact, uh, you know we've talked about it before, where Christ uh, made it very clear that um, with his his attitude towards women and his br- bringing them up. And the women loved being around him because of the way he treated them. That that was not a way to conduct yourself to be abusive towards a woman. And um, there's other verses too. But it's ironic in our society. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, in Christianity, uh, that's ignored. And but or it can be ignored by those people criticizing Christianity. They say, "Well, this happened and that happened." Yes, it did. But why don't you go to the Bible and hold the individual accountable to his what should have been his own teaching? Uh, I've seen um, various uh, commentators. Probably one uh, that comes to mind on various things was uh, Barbara Walters when she would interview people, and she said, "Well, you don't think God speaks to you, do you?" And indicating that there is no way God's going to talk to you. And of course, uh, and you don't think you're the only one, do you? Somebody should have said to her, did God tell you that? You're preaching the gospel here. Do you even have a right to? And that's the problem. When somebody starts talking about how they're criticizing you, or they're saying they know better. Well, then how do you know better? Well, they say it's reason, but they can't even reason. Uh, you know, you take some of the great scientists in the world, we can't even reason through that because of their, their level is so much higher than ours. What can you do with the creator of the universe if you can't even do an Einstein or a Tesla or somebody the line line? And so so often what we really need to do is just basically look that God so loved the world and that Paul said the love of Christ compels him and that we should be recognized that we have a job to do. Now, that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Um, Paul himself said, I say the things I don't want to say and do the things I don't want to do, and vice versa to that. And uh, But he says, as we grow in Christ, we should come to a point to where we're more loving towards one another and uh, within the church family, within our household family. And a lot of times when it comes, as when you start having one mate or the other going through a lot of um, aspect of... Uh, trying to get into a, a match of who's the uh, who's the boss, uh, you see a lot of abuse happen. Yeah, yeah. Something that I think is cool to look at is the uniqueness of how humans were formed. 
in comparison or in comparison to the rest of creation. Something I actually had just recently uh, saw. So like when you read through like the creation account, it talks about how like God said, let there be light. And there is light, how God spoke things into existence. Um, and then it's talked about how he actually formed man. And I was, and, but you also see too, where in um, uh, Genesis two verses 19 says out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field. So it's possible that God very much too formed, you know, beasts kind of somewhat similar in the same way he did man out of the ground. But, uh, but we have almost a whole chapter just describing the creation of man, which I think is significant because um, man is almost like the climax of God's creation. There's a, so last week I referenced uh, Josephus, um, who is a Hebrew or a bit like Jewish scholar from back in the first century. And something that he had written about the creation of man, he says, uh, uh, let's see if I can find it. It says, uh, Moses, after the seventh day was over, begins to talk philosophically and concerning the formation of man. He says that the Lord took the dust of the ground and formed man and inserted in him a spirit and a soul. And this man was called Adam, which in Hebrew tongue signifies the one that is red because uh, he was formed out of the red earth and compounded together. For out of that kind is virgin and true earth. God also presented the living creatures when he had made them according to their kind, both male and female, to Adam who gave them both uh, those names by which they are still called. Uh, but when he saw that Adam had no female companion, no society, for there was no such created, and that he wondered at the other animals, which were male and female, he laid, a, uh, he laid him asleep and took away one of his ribs out of it and formed a woman, whereupon Adam knew her uh, when she was brought to him and acknowledged that she was made out of himself. Now a woman is called in the Hebrew tongue Issa, but the name of this woman was Eve, which signifies the mother of all living things. And so um, I kind of I find it interesting how it just kind of adds a little more flavor into the, the creation account of man. What's interesting is when you read through the whole creation account, um, it talks about how like everything was like formless and void, and then God started creating everything. But what's interesting is he created the earth before he created the rest of like the planets. And so it's interesting how, of all the vast universe, we, it talks about how he created like the planet that humans are going to live on first, and everything else then was just formed around it. Um, and then he formed everything else that's going to be sustainable for human life and everything that humans are going to have, like plants for food and uh, for animals. And then, uh, and then he creates man as like, like a climax. And then it wasn't until after the creation of man that he said, and because throughout the rest of creation, he said, and this was good, and this was good. But at the end of creation of man, he said, this is very good. Um, and so we see that man is like a climax of God's creation um, in the sense that, uh, like we talked about, like the image of God, how we're made to reflect like who God is in the Godhead. And what's interesting is it says that when he formed man, he breathed into him life, and then uh, he became a living soul. And so I think we, as humans, tend to think of us as being physical beings, and like we have a spirit that will, you know, go to heaven one day. But ultimately, we're actually made because it says he became a living soul. Like we're actually spiritual beings with an earthly body, with a physical body. Because when we die, we don't really actually cease to die or cease to exist. You know, we just move on to eternity, whether that be either heaven or hell. But ultimately, like we're actually spiritual beings. Um, and actually a soul that, that happens to have a body. Yeah, and you know, I, uh, one of the things that I think is, is interesting through this whole process 
man was made out of the earth. And we, today, when you, uh, you see a, a, a body, your own personal body, and if, there, if you get vitamins or minerals out of, out of whack within your body, the correct balance, you can actually have maladies of various sorts, you know. And same with the animals. Um, you know, they've had uh, some places where they have, like, for instance, fed cattle, just strictly all corn products. Well, they developed a, a uh, condition called acidosis, and within about nine months, their bone structure is not doing so well, and, and they're not good for us to, to eat. But when you look at the fact that everything comes from the earth, and uh, <clears throat> that feeds man and feeds the beast, um, that tells you very strongly that, uh, um, that the original garden would have had uh, a tremendous amount of capability of feeding man at a level, particularly if you look at some things that come out of the, now we have, have meat, like vitamin B12. Now, was that needed in the original creation? I have, I have zero idea how that, if it did or didn't. But right now, vitamin B12 has to be uh, come from meat. It does not come from vegetables or the vegetative world. And so when we th when that happens, some people say, "Well, you generate it yourself." Uh, not that I've ever seen prove that it is. So we have to have a certain amount of that. Some people say, "Well, I can take pills, but that's not natural." Uh, you, you have to go around the world. Not everybody has the accessibility like we do to you know that type of um, uh, vitamin pills and and uh, minerals and that sort of thing in a pill form. But the ironic part of it is that all comes from the earth. Man grows through the earth, as the animals grow through the earth, and if he does eat an animal, if that animal has eaten a balanced diet, it's actually good for him because it gives him a lot of nutrients, and quite frankly, very accessible nutrients. And it's interesting that that's what the Bible really lays out to us. And uh, as we talk about like, man being formed from the earth, what's interesting too is it's commonly known in the scientific community that... Uh, that we as humans are actually made up of 60% water. Well, when you go back and read the creation account, the earth was originally like, it was like a ball of water as it, as it's described, then, you know, land was formed in it. And so to think of like how like the earth was, you know, primarily water to begin with. And even now it's majority of the earth is still covered in water, but the fact that man was formed from earth and that we're also 60%, you know, made up 60% water. Yeah, it, it, I, I think the thing is, it, you know, whether you know, when we talk to be a reducible complexity, whether you look at it from a creationist standpoint or an evolutionist standpoint, with the one word that comes to mind is complexity, staggering complexity. And so for someone to say they have it, oh, we've got it all figured out. Well, right now there's def there's battles going on within the evolutionary circles of saying, yeah, this is how it was done. That's how it was done. Uh, and they really don't know because it is so complex. Uh, just, you know, they, they still, how, how do you, how do you develop an eye, which is hooked to your brain that has um, very precise ability to use your eyes at a, at a level like you can. I can still remember my grandson uh, when he was not hardly yet able to walk and had, the sun came in and it happened to accent a little piece of dust on the floor that you probably wouldn't see without the sun. And he's down there trying to pick it up, you know, with his fingers, with his eyes, his hand coordination, that sort of thing. 
And it, it makes you realize that what a miracle and what a wonderful thing our site is. And then you need to think about one thing. How does anybody heal that by his command, like Christ did in, in the days? Talking about like men, uh, being formed from the ground, do you think maybe that's... So there's a lot of uh, like relig- or religions out there that you know that are pantheistic and you know believe in like the idea of mother nature and how how we are can ultimately be one with nature and one with the re- with the earth you think that kind of is somewhat of a distortion of uh the idea or that you know the account of man being made from the ground yeah they're actually basically saying that uh, god is is in everything and the other thing too is when you think about pantheism is that they also believe that you can die and become something else other than a man they believe you can come back as some animal. That's why that uh, they have certain uh, uh, animals that are sacred and won't touch them. Uh, so I have, we're not. Uh, um, w- that would not even be sensible to me because now you're saying all these maybe trillions of animals that are out here were somewhere along the line were a form of man at one time or or a man are going to go back to that, uh, doesn't even make sense. I'd much rather believe that we're here by specific design uh, and that this light is, even though it's complex, is not going to be nearly as complex to the next life. One of the things, for instance, that I've <clears throat> I've stated over the years, the Bible talks about, and we've talked about this already, where that, the, that God set a society in the mother's womb and specifically designed us in in our mother's womb to be who we are as individuals. And if God is not sovereign over the womb, he can't be sovereign over this life, and he surely can't be sovereign over eternal life. There is no way, because if it, everything would be a surprise to him. And I think of Paul where he said, speaking to the Greek scholars on Mars Hill, where he said, let me tell you about this unknown God you have a statue to. In him we move and have our being, and he appoints the times and the places. And, you know, when you think about that, you know, that, that the Bible says that, that he knows even where a sparrow falls. <clears throat> when you think about that, that gives you an idea of how everything is interconnected from the standpoint of what God knows on a minute or second or even beyond that on a, on a basis that we we can't even grasp, that even a sparrow, and even now I can look out the windows and see all sorts of sparrows out and, and think around the world that he even knows when one of them drops. The interconnectivity of all that that God would have to have would stagger their imagination. And so um, that is something that's mind-blowing. But he also said that you can you know, knows the hairs on your head. And uh, so if he knows where you're, when you were born, he knows where you're living. If he knows when, where you're going to take you to after you die, and he knows all the intricacies in between. We're trying to grasp and wrap our head around something that is so staggering. And even if you really look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, let's let's give them a moment of due. Let's say we did come about by evolution. That is so staggeringly complex that I don't think you could put enough years in place 
and for that to happen, there had to be somewhere along the line, there had to be some influences. There is a theory within the evolution called punctuated equilibrium, where they believe that that has happened, where you have a catastrophe and it dramatically alters the DNA, writing the very core of your DNA. That, that's hard to imagine that that a catastrophe would do it. We haven't seen that. Because when we've seen a lot of catastrophes in my lifetime, let alone over the over the last you know millennia or so, so we're really talking about getting back down, saying there has to be a designer that specifically puts it in place, and he has a shall we say a a, a computer in heaven that can so closely monitor everything. He can make the statements we just talked about. Yeah, and out of what you said, there's a couple couple things I actually wanted to bring up. Um, one of them we touched on it very. We just mentioned it last week, but there is the the belief of uh, I think it's I believe it's called theological evolution, where God used God created the world, but He used evolution in the form of like you know the theory of evolution to actually form the earth, and that um, and it's kind of almost like trying to teeter both lines where where you're. Um, acquiescing to you know the idea of the theory of evolution, but that God ultimately was in control of it. Like, what do you say to that? Well, let's let's look let's look at what God says in the in the Bible. You know, we uh, we think of the, uh, the many questions in the Old Testament. God, can we we need to have this happen if you're going to uh, be able to accomplish what you want. We we got to have the sun roll back up on the steps. How did God do that? He did do it, it says. And they were, and sometimes they were able to have daylight where they could fight the battle way well into what would normally have been night. But yet it was bright enough. So the, otherwise God has extreme command over that. I don't know if it's the rotation of the earth or did he somehow, you know, send backwards the whole universe. And much like you would a clock. If you tried to wind it backwards, all the gearing and stuff would move it back. Uh, that's a possibility. We don't know. Uh, when you look at the miracles of Christ, it, they didn't take a long evolutionary times. In fact, uh, you think about the, his healing of people that were blind. When you think about the resurrection of people from being, when they were dead, like Lazarus. When you think about taking a few fish and a few loaves and be able to feed 15,000 people, which would have been there with men, women, and children, or more. And when you look at the uh, all the other effects that he had when he took uh, water, which is hydrogen and oxygen, and uh, wound up making a, a very complex organic compound called wine, because it has a lot more in it. Wine has a lot more in it than just hydrogen and oxygen, calcium, potassium, uh, various other types of compounds in that uh, are like resveratrol and things like this that are good for the body. Um, now you're talking about somebody being able to do that at his command. That smacks to me that God had total command when he knew what he was going to do with his universe. He called it into place. It was called the eternal purpose. And that's why all the things we looked at at the foundational point of, a, of the uh, before creation, God had a total, complete plan, and he had all the tools in place, you know, or products in place, or whatever it is in his terminology, to be able to do what he's doing. And we kind of covered that in the first session that we had together, that um, uh, if God had a, has an eternal plan, he was ready to do it, because he actually advises us to do the same thing in Scripture. If you're going to build a building, make sure you can finish the thing. 
And along the lines of how Jesus Jesus's miracles didn't take, like you said, length of time as we would normally see, like in the theory of evolution. Um, I know it's within, like, I think some Christian denominations, it's kind of like a big hot topic at debate about, like, when it comes to, like, like you said, like the changing of water to wine and um, about the debate about whether whether it's alcoholic wine or whether it's not. Um, historically, like when you go into the context, they did have an alcoholic wine back then. It doesn't now, it doesn't have like the alcohol content. It's a small fraction of what we have now. But I think that's why like um, kind of historically alcohol was kind of one of those things that was used um a lot of times because water quality was so bad. I think even Paul mentioned in one of his letters, like drink a little wine to ail like your upset stomach because um, of the the alcohol content that can, you know. But, um, but when you talk about the water to wine, you're not only uh, changing the elements, uh, to ferment something to alcohol takes time. So not only are you is he showing himself as God over the elements, but also God over time of that process of fermentation. And so... Exactly, and, and you know, wine has in it a lot of minerals: it, uh, calcium, you know, potassium, iron, um, and other whatever's in the soil is going to come up into the plant. Hopefully, not something poisonous, you know. But the bottom line is, is that uh, you know that's what makes and develops one wine superior to another is the correct balance that's in the soil, and. So we got to recognize that uh, for him to do that. And what was interesting was that the taster said, you've saved your best wine till last. It was excellent for the palate. So how do you know intrinsically how to develop a wine that would taste be the best tasting wine there? And so, uh, you know, not only did he make wine, he made the best wine that would be appealing to people. And anyone who is in that industry nowadays of making wine and stuff knows the complexities that goes into all the elements that go into like a good wine, even down to like your water quality and where your water's from and, and everything. And so to understand the complexity that goes into making like, like it's like the best wine um, and for Jesus just to create that at his own, you know, at his own command. But uh, something that too, that you had uh, that as we're talking through this um, talking about, we, we had mentioned like a theological evolution, but in last week we talked about gap theory and there's so many of these um, different beliefs on like how the world was created. And, but it seems like even like in some Christian denominations, you know, that believe like in the gap theory, the day age theory that believe in like theological evolution or some Christian denominations even, you know, believe in evolution itself. Um, like, why do you think there's such like a resistance to um, that people have to the idea that God actually created the earth in the way the Bible describes well, in some cases, I think it's because of their ego. They can't conceive of it, of a being that has that much more power and intelligence than they are. But they also think they can logically figure out anything out, and uh, that is not the case. There's many things that we've tried to figure out but haven't been able to, and I think that's a part of it. The other thing is they don't want ridiculed. You know that that there could be a, a being that could actually bring this about. And uh, that, but the other thing is, it is obedience. And um, a lot of people don't want to be obedient to the scriptures. Uh, there, uh, we've uh, mentioned in the past where people have made statements that, why did you, when they were asked, why did you believe evolution so quickly? Because 
And they would say, well, because we can be as sexually permissive as we like. It wasn't the archaeological or biological or any form of evidence along those lines. It was simply something that, uh, that the sensualities of the body that they wanted to be able to do what they wanted to do. And now, which is really kind of dumb when you really think about it, that they're saying we don't care about the judgment coming. We want to do what we're doing right now. And yes, God does cause us to call, cause us to come to a discipline in our lives, and of you know, ab, abstaining from things that are actually along those lines. And a lot of people don't want to. They purposely say, "I rather, I want to be doing this very thing." Well, uh, it 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 can be said that in anything that you're in that takes discipline whether it be a sport or be the military, many times you're forced to do things that are uncomfortable. In fact, uh, recently, uh, I know a young man that when they asked him why he ran cross country, and he said, I wanted to get comfortable with the uncomfortable because he knew the effort and the work was going to have to go into it. And that person was my grandson. I think even like within... Even within the secular world, people understand that. Like you go to like any kind of business conference, and they they, they talk about how uh, you have to get outside your comfort zone if you're going to grow in, in any aspect. And so, like we, yeah, like I said, we see that also, like just within the secular world. And uh, something I do want to touch on, I think it's kind of an exhaustive subject, so I don't think we'll get super deep into it. But we talk, when we talk about the you know the creation and how God created everything. Um, that ultimately he set like sets a plan in place that he's had since before the foundation of the world, and so we see um, we see God's sovereignty all through creation, not just creation, but just through like the whole Bible. We see God's sovereignty and how He works His plan, and uh, how His how it starts with creation, and it can, that story continues through the rest of the Bible even up to now, and so and that's when I think we can get into a topic that uh, I think is very much misunderstood in a lot of Christian circles and that's talking about like predestination versus like free will and whether or not, um, whether or not we are actually have the free will to, you know, do like what we want to do or like make our own decisions or whether like God's sovereignty is over that and whether he's already predestined what we're going to do. And not only just in like how we conduct ourselves, but even in salvation itself on whether or not when God formed the world, whether he actually predestined certain people to go to heaven, certain people won't. And because uh, I think that's taken a lot of times out of uh, Romans 8, uh, 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son in order in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so I think that's a very uh, exhaustive subject. But uh, I think that is important to kind of talk about and kind of understand um, like the difference between like predestination and free will and how that fits into God's design. Not only is it definitely hard to do, it's been debated for at least two millennia by various biblical scholars about what that means. You know, there's some believe, believe in uh, that, that are called Calvinists that believe it's 100%, and then there's some that believe it's the, it's the volition of God, and there's some it's totally the volition of man, and that's Armenianism. And some people believe it's somewhere in between there. What I have to do is I have to say the, what the Scripture says, that uh, God said, my ways are not your ways, and your ways are not my ways. Higher are my ways above yours than the heavens are above the earth. When we start talking about time and eternity, 
we are trying to say that we had the ability to, to understand it. And we know that the Bible says God so loved the world that whoever believes, we know that. Um, but um, how God works that, because we're looking at our dimensions and our realms, not the, not the unseen realm, how God works that, I, I don't think anybody really knows and won't know on this side until we get to heaven. And if God chooses to reveal it even then. Yeah, and I think I do think the idea of, uh, because I, I've seen this, that the idea that it doesn't, like, that ultimately someone's going to go to heaven regardless because God chose them to go to, has, has predestined them. And so I think to some degree that can't hinder our, that belief can't hinder our efforts in, in ministry, I think, because, um, there's the idea of like, well, it doesn't matter if I witness to that person or not, because ultimately, you know, if God's predestined it, then they're going to go to heaven. If he hasn't, if he predestined that they're not going to, they're not going to anyways. And I think that belief can hinder our ministry to some degree. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think the Bible makes it very clear when, uh, when you look at uh, Matthew chapter 28, where uh, the great commission was given and he said, go into all the nations. And, you know, and with the gospel and, and uh, making disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, we got to realize that um, God gave a command. Our job is to do what we're supposed to do as ambassadors. In fact, Paul over in his letter to the uh, second, in his second letter to the, well, actually the third letter to the Corinthians, we call it second Corinthians. We don't know where the second one, where it's at. There was one in the middle. But he said that with, uh, we are new creations. The old is gone, this new is coming. Now we're ambassadors out of heaven. Uh, Philippians says that our citizenship is in heaven. Now we're ambassadors on earth. And we, we don't have the lines that are drawn by man. You know, the United States, Brazil, um, you know, Europe, Asia, our mission field is planet earth. And... <clears throat> And when we recognize that with, with the gospel, then we, we are to try to bring forth the gospel around the world. That's why many of us find out people who say, hey, I'm, God's calling me to Japan, or God's calling me to Ireland, or God's calling me to some remote area of, of any area in the world. Uh, that's why we say, okay, if you know, they show us where God is calling, and we support that mission. But the bottom line is, our first and foremost goal is to understand our citizenship is not here on earth. And we're just, at this point, we're sojourners. We've been born, again, the, in fact, the Bible puts it this way in the book of Colossians. God moved us out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and Christ is the light. And it's a different kingdom. And that's who we're supposed to represent as ambassadors, is that kingdom. And... uh a lot of people are, for instance, um, this is a political subject, but uh, a lot of people are saying, oh, why am I, why are we allowing all these people coming in from other nations without any any uh, vetting uh, whatsoever? But then again, there's a lot of them where Christians have went out to and, and, and ministered to, and they have come to a point of putting their uh, trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then... Um, of whatever uh, a nation on earth we're a part of, be it America, whoever, be more important than our our position in Christ. Uh, when we we move out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we are in Christ, 
and we are to represent. We're ambassadors of Christ here, and Bible says even God's making his appeal to us. Well, if God has so loved the world, that tells us that we have to make sure that our love, I don't care who it is, and whatever position they hold or everything is supposed to supersede our own thoughts and everything and, and make sure that we show the love of Christ. Now, love isn't some ooey-gooey type thing. Sometimes the Bible tells us that God's love is a disciplinary love. And we know what? We do that with our own kids uh, when we make when they are doing things that could be harmful to them and or, or potentially uh, if we see them doing something and uh, that if they would happen to do something wrong, they could get injured. We try to correct that immediately. And so being uh, being corrected by God is his way of saying, I love you. The book of Hebrews makes that very clear. And so what we have to do as Christians is to make sure that we represent Christ on earth, and we do that by coming into, you know, talking about the work and person of Jesus Christ as the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And in my opinion is that too often we want to start judging people from the standpoint of our own personal likes and dislikes instead of what God has said. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the issue of like um, like immigration stuff, I think that's definitely a topic that we could get a little more into when we start talking about like Tower of Babel and talking about nations and stuff. Um, but you had mentioned something about how our uh, bodies, you know, how we, how this world isn't, is like, this isn't our permanent home and that um, it's just temporary. There's a verse, and I think I had gotten over this a few weeks ago when I I had someone on talking about like the supernatural and about like our bodies and stuff. And uh, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter five says, "For we know that the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked." Uh, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is uh, mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so, yeah, I think it, I think it is good to have a perspective of understanding that um, that ultimately, like what we have here on Earth, isn't going to last, and that ultimately we have to have that eternal perspective. And uh, and I think that does come back down to when we, as we talk about the creation of man how we're made in God's image in that um, even like when we read uh, it through Genesis 1 and it, or in Genesis 2, it talks about how uh, God brought each animal to Adam and for him to name. And we also see throughout, um, you know, prior to the fall, how God walked with Adam in communion and relationship in the garden and how ultimately that that's in, when you pair that also with uh, the fact that we're created as a living, as a soul, uh, not just as a body, uh, we were ultimately created, you know, to live eternally with God in relationship with Him. And so on this earth, anything that we try to achieve on this earth, you know, from a very uh, temporal, earthly aspect, uh, doesn't compare to what, you know, the relationship that we're ultimately designed for to have with God. Yeah, you know, we, um, we, we, we see darkly now, Paul says. He says that there are just things that just aren't clear to us in this life. And, you know, and we talked, we've talked about that quite a bit, you know, various things of creation and various things of uh, responsibility we have on earth and, and uh, before God. And there's some things that aren't totally clear at this point. But I know one thing that we are to do, and 
uh, we are to indeed, on a daily basis, uh, live our lives in accordance with uh, what God has laid out in the Bible. And, you know, when you think about the, for instance, a lot of people start talking about being in the Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, I was talking to a guy about being, you know, we were talking one time, and um, this guy was a pastor, and he was talking about a lot of this, what is called the charisma gifts, especially a few. And he went on and on about them. But he was also telling me how the church had a lot of division, which is not, you know, God's not the author of confusion or division within the church. In fact, anybody that causes division among the brethren over in Proverbs, they said it, it is an abomination to God and that one would do that. And so when you really look at what God wants from us, from and he said, if you're spirit-controlled, then you need to go to the fruit of the spirit. Well, what's the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, you know, et cetera. That's over in Galatians. And we need to recognize that we're, when we're truly spirit-controlled, that we do not um, retaliate. A lot of people will say eye for an eye. And tooth for a tooth. But they didn't read the next verse. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And they forget about that particular aspect of it that God is stating to us that um, we're to love one another, represent Christ. That doesn't mean we don't tell people something's not good for them. Um, the um, Because truthfully, you know, my background is one that um, <clears throat> came out of the party world where I did a lot of partying, and uh, a lot of the things now, I would, if anybody would say anything, I'd say, that, that is bad for your health, some of the things that we did. and But they went ahead and did that, you know, uh, various types of recreational drugs, and, and of course, maybe alcohol to, the, I don't know about an extreme, but considerable amount, and how it can be detrimental to your life. And uh, we would uh, we would be wrong in telling somebody go do that uh you know like with the, the the thing today it's a big buzzword is fentanyl it's out there you know and it's got it's very dangerous it's killed a lot of people and um our, we would we would consider it an act of love if somebody stopped us or, or one of our children or our grandchildren from doing something that would be that detrimental to them because even if it doesn't kill them it could take their mind and destroy it to the point of where they no longer are um, an individual of what they were. They're not even the same person sometimes. So love of God means, first of all, reacting with somebody to protect them. And it also means that you don't go out and judge people. And you share the gospel of Christ with them. Now, they can reject it. That's up to them. But you don't try to take a... Um, you can't take a 12-gauge shotgun and force somebody. Or you can't take a machete like some religions try to do and say either turn or burn. Um, that's that's not a responsible way of looking at things from the standpoint of us on Earth. It It's a hot point with me because I think it's abused mightily today. I think the fruit of the Spirit, as you mentioned, is a good starting point for when we look at— so when we look at, like, where it says that we're made uh, we're created in the image of God, like what does that mean, the image of God? And like what does that mean for us to be created in the image of God and what should that look like? Like what is the image of God that we're supposed to be the ones that reflect? And I do think the fruit of the spirit is a good spot or a good place to uh to start to see like what 
because ultimately like so i think from a human standpoint we look at um things like a uh, truth and love as something that we do or something that we believe but when you look at it from god's perspective like that's who he is god is love god is truth and that's who he is and he is love he you know in the um he is just and so when we look at like the fruits of the spirit we look at those as things like that we can do but you know when we look you look at the image of god like that's actually who god is and so as us as christians like we we should be the ones that are trying to reflect who god is and i think that's why it's called the fruit of the spirit not commands or things you're supposed to do that when you actually abide with christ as we see like in uh, john 15 um as we abide with them the fruit is something that comes with it like like patience is one of the fruit of the spirit like have you ever tried really hard to be patient it just doesn't work and like the harder you try to be patient it seems like the more impatient you become and but the fruit of the spirit is what comes when you actually align yourself with god and uh then god's image of who he is begins to actually reflect through your life yeah, I, I understand about that being patient. Uh, kind of reminds me of a story of a of an elderly pastor and one of his associates who was a young man, and the elderly pastor was sitting in a chair behind the desk, and the and the young associate was just pacing back and forth in the in the room. And finally, the elderly pastor said, "What's the matter?" And the young man said, "I'm in a hurry, and God's not." And so often, you know, we uh, we have our agenda. And uh, uh, sometimes when we have our agenda, we can wind up being very uh, uh, poorly behaved, shall we say, in, in the things that we do. And uh, I can remember more than once people who waited on God and uh, for, to, for the next thing. In fact, uh, once they discover that God wanted them to wait on them, they just sit back with joy and doors opened up mightily for them to be able to serve. And I, I think, uh, I think uh, one uh, one book that I read was "Experiencing God" by Henry Blackaby, and uh, and anyhow, the uh, Blackaby and Cloud, I think it was. It's been a lot of years, um, but he talked about look where God is working and join Him, and uh, so that's what we should be doing out there is saying, okay, where is God working? And one example that he gave was that a couple of girls wanted to start a Bible study in college, couldn't find a place to do it, and uh, but they lived their lives. And finally, a couple of ladies came to them and said, younger the students, said, we would, we've been wanting to study the Bible. We know that you're Christians. Would you lead us? And after all their work, they had nothing going on. But when the, now God brought the, the, these young ladies to them, and they were able to sit down and have a good small groups where they studied the Scripture and men showed the love of God, otherwise the fruit of the Spirit. And when, when you, where you mentioned uh, waiting on God, I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily understand, like what that means too. Especially like I see a lot of people who think waiting on God means not doing anything and just waiting for God to work. And in some cases that can be, but like we see in Nehemiah, um, uh, he had like, he had like a, I guess like a vision or he had like, you know, um, he had like uh, felt a calling or a conviction to go rebuild the walls of Israel or of Jerusalem. And, um, but he didn't sit back and wait for God just to do it. Like he actually, he went to the king. He said, Hey, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. This is what I'd ask for you to give me. I want protection. And this is how much time I want. And he went there and he actually stepped up and actually like assessed the situation. He actually said, okay, this is what we need to do. And he actually took 
the effort to do it, and then God blessed his efforts. And there was a, a quote I heard, I heard, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago. It says, God will move mountains, but he wants you to bring the shovel. And a lot of times, like, when we, I think sometimes we expect God to work in certain areas of our life, but expect what we expect to not have to do any of the work ourselves to, um, uh, like, for example, like, if you have an addiction, like, a lot of people expect, okay, if I pray, God just can't take it from me. But you don't, but they also don't do the work that it takes to actually overcome that addiction and to stop it. And so I think there is that. We have to have the understanding that if you're going to wait on God, that doesn't mean that you're waiting passively for God just to act, that there is an active part that we have to play as well. And many times it's, it's, it's a total attitude of prayer, you know, that uh, that people would have. I, uh, I was in Chicago area one time at a uh, uh, convention of, um, of um, the uh, regular Baptist, and an individual spoke, and he talked about, uh, you know, serving within the church. But he talked about this one woman, and he said she was laying in bed, and on a good day, she might move her left toe, or big toe on her left foot, I should say. And But she absolutely said, please bring me the prayers of the church, you know, people that are wanting prayer. And what she did on a daily basis to serve was prayer. Well, a lot of people will say things like, well, all you can do is pray. Well, let me tell you, it's the first thing you should do is pray and should uh, seek God at the at his throne of grace and mercy. And ironically, about a couple years later, we had a gal in our church that had Parkinson's that got to that point, eventually was just bedridden, but she wanted all the prayers of the that were uh, called into the church that she wanted to be given that where she could pray for them. She may not have been able to do anything, uh, sing, and she was a good singer in her day, but she wasn't able to do all these things anymore. But now she could pray. And um, I think about a... Uh, a, pa- a pastor that he was an evangelist, and uh, he kept uh, getting these wonderful letters from a lady that was uh, telling him, encouraging him, and praying for him, praying for you the whole bit. Well, he finally was close enough to her. He thought, I'm going to swing in and see her. Well, come to find out it was a nursing home, and she was on the second level. And he said it was a pretty dismal place when he walked in. But when he got upstairs and walked into her room, she was at her desk that they had given her, and she says, as soon as she seen him, her face just lit up the room. And they had tremendous fellowship together. And she not only did that for him, but did for others too. She couldn't even get hardly, you know, get out of the room while she was in a wheelchair and everything else. But she could pray. She could write letters of encouragement. And you know what? Those are very highly sought after in the Bible. Because, you know, Barnabas was considered the son of encouragement. And uh, that's what Barnabas means. So, you know, we as individuals, uh, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, uh, it can, you know, the Spirit can cause us to do the things that when we, we bring forth the love of God and the encouragement and, and, uh, and to people who are just out there. Because he said, I get, I get out here, I get real lonely sometimes, and I get discouraged. Well, this, and about that time, this lady's letters would come. And just lift his spirit. And so we've got to recognize it's, it's extremely important for us to, to take advantage of, of, uh, of the time that we have for prayer and keep ourselves uh, at, at an opportunity for prayer. 
I mean, I think prayer is definitely a part of, like I mentioned, uh, John 15 talking about like abiding with Christ and prayer is very much a, a part of that. And, um, and when we talk about, uh, like waiting on God and aligning, aligning yourself with God, uh, I don't think that can happen without prayer. I mean, that's a part of like, and that, again, it comes down to creation, how we were created for relationship and you can't have a relationship with another person if you're not communicating. So if you're not, if God's not communicating through to you through his word, by you reading his word and you're not communicating to God through prayer, um, you can't have a relationship there. And prayer, I think too, is more than just us going to God and, um, saying, well, this is what I want, or, you know, um, can you heal this or whatever? Prayer is very much too, um, coming to God and like praising him, but then also being, learning to also to be silent, to actually listen for his voice as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and God will, and, and being in his word, studying his word, because he will, many times your answer to questions is right in the word itself. And God will use that. Um, you know, the, um, uh, too often we want to circumvent the process. We just want to say, uh, well, it's like the, I heard a guy say he was a, had a ministry in Israel, and all of a sudden a young man just walked in one day and said, God told me to come here. And the guy said, well, that's funny. God never told me you were coming. You know, the point is, is that we many times are guided by what we want to do and sort of saying what does you know God want us to do. And I, my concern is, is that we are uh, too often doing things just simply because it appeals to our flesh and stunt and doesn't isn't spirit guided. And we have to be very careful about doing that. Yeah, and that's where I think there's a verse, and I think you might know where it's at. It says uh, uh, where it's talking about prayer, and it says uh, anything that you ask in Jesus' name will be given to you. And people, I think a lot of people tend to use that as like, okay, well, I need a new car. Well, I want a new job. I want this. And if I just pray in Jesus' name, he's going to give it to me like a vending machine. And I think that's very much a diff- uh, a wrong um, interpretation of that because that the rest of the context of that passage assumes that that uh, your heart's aligned with God's heart and where you want what God's plan is for your life. And then it goes into whatever you ask. And so where your prayers begin to align with what God's will is for your life. And that's where God will give you what, you know, what you ask and in his name, um, when you're actually aligned with him. That's right. And, and, and the word in his name, we need to be uh, at that point, we need to get back into the time of how they looked at things, what that meant. And being in the name means in God's authority. And because uh, that's, you know, we often just want to throw it out as a, in Jesus' name. Well, that means that you are, have sought his authority and that's what you're doing. Um, we have to recognize one thing, too. So when it comes that the Bible says uh, you have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. You know, otherwise you, you, you've given yourself totally over to Christ. Otherwise you've been born again. You've been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And doing that, you're seeking God in all aspects. And um, sometimes that's um, uh, something we put back on the back burner. I, uh, there's a quote I wish I could remember, but it went to, to something to the extent that if God is our father, or if God is our creator, he's our father. And we cannot put him to the exterior of our life and expect no judgment, because he's not going to allow that. The Bible says you're going to be held accountable 
for every word, every deed that you do uh, over in the book of Hebrews. And we need to understand that there's an accountability to it, and we will, that, and God will hold us accountable. I think that's where a lot of the tears come from, from that over in the Revelation that he has to wipe away because you realize what you could have done if you had been in tune with him, if you had listened to him. And I'm sure that I'm going to be one of those that's going to be sobbing quite a bit because, uh, you know, that you just gets caught up in the way things go and you sometimes you you put yourself before the things of God. And I don't want to, you know, let anybody think that I think I've, I've I've arrived and everybody else has that is not the case, and uh, but I thank God that He's patient, and we you know we that's why we thank God for stories like uh, the uh, King David when he really messed up, he literally sent a man to his death, and uh, King David said God called him a man after His own heart because he repented, and he repented wholeheartedly. And that's what God wants out of us, is to be a very repentant soul. And even when we mess up, just go straight to God. We're not going to—sometimes it's difficult to do, because, you know, Peter said, Lord, away from me, I'm a sinful man. We feel that way. But Jesus said, you can, and Paul said it too, we can cry out, Abba, Father, which is a distinct privilege for a Christian, because Christ called out, Abba, Father, in his prayer before he went to the cross. It's a distinct privilege, and it should cause us to recognize that we're a new creation in Christ, and that we have that now have that capability. And that's why the, the, the first creation of man is so important to us, because that represents the sovereignty of God of putting all this together. And then when the Ephesians said that we are over in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is an act of God, and we should be, that so no man can boast. Well, otherwise, what we have, every reason to be thankful and every reason to surrender our life over to Christ. And I think what an important point you had mentioned about like David and um, about how he's a man after God's own heart. And if you think about it, like nowadays, if you had someone like David who made did all the same things David did, he would, we would consider him being like unfit for like church leadership, but yet he's also someone that, um, in fact, I think a lot of major biblical characters that we look up to would, I think nowadays we would say are, would be unfit for church leadership, but they're people that God says after his own heart. And even though he's screwed up in a big way, like you mentioned, it, it still says that, um, that he's a man after God's own heart. I think the reason why is because, um, again, it comes down to the abiding, like, he wanted what God wanted. And even though he screwed up, like you said, he repented. Um, but ultimately he was, his mission as you see through his whole life was because he wanted to do God's will and he wanted to see God's will fulfilled. And he gave God the glory for like, even like with Goliath, like he gave God all the glory with all that. And, and so I think that's a part of, cause I think it's hard for us to understand sometimes like, how can I be someone after God's own heart? I know I screwed up here or I did this and, and I think I, you know, you hear that argument a lot about how, like, how can God save me? Because you know, you don't know what I've done. I've done this, and I've done this, and um, how can God love someone who's messed up as bad as me? And I think David's a great example of that. That to be a man after God's own heart doesn't mean that you're completely flawless and that you don't screw up. Um, you see that in Job. I mean, um, Job is considered a righteous man, and and probably one of the most righteous men at that time. Um, but he still, you know, he still questioned God. He still got mad at God and he still, you know, 
demanded answers from God. And even like at some point he said, you know, it'd have been better if I wasn't even born. But then God came to him, he rebuked him, he kind of put him in his place. But, you know, we still look back at Job as being a righteous person despite his flaws. And you know, one thing about Job is sometimes missed and, and uh, before Satan ever was on the scene of, of condemning him before God and all those things happening to him, you know, he, he used to build altars and sacrifice to God and he, and, uh, and, and as in essence of uh, repenting, you know, maybe of things that he's done and also for his children and this sort of thing. So he was a man that was seeking God. And that's why, uh, God, God said to Satan, he's a man after, you know, after following after me. And, and of course, eventually come down, well, you're not letting me touching his body. I want to go down and strike him. And so he did, and but not to the point of death. And uh, But we got to recognize that it wasn't after the fact he was doing it long before that uh, he ever had to go through that tribulation. And he got... You know, as any of us would, you know, he got the attitude of, why me, Lord? Well, it just, uh, I could say that myself about some things, and but you know what? Why not me? Why not me? Especially when I know that I wound up, uh, what I'm really saying is sometimes, Lord, don't hold me accountable for, for sinning against you when I knew better. And it's, it's and it doesn't necessarily work that way. Just like David, you were mentioning David. David sinned, but he also his child died, and that broke his heart. And he, but his statement was, oh, "I uh, I can't uh, expect him to come to me in essence, but I can go to him." He knew that he could go to heaven by uh, doing what God has called him to do. Yeah, and something that too that's good to point out is. Because um, we talk about like God's grace and His forgiveness, but God's forgiveness and grace doesn't mean that there's not still natural consequences to the things we do. And so, you know, we might mess up and you know go to God and God forgives you, but that doesn't like with David, like with what he did. Like he said, his son ended up dying later on. Uh, he there's all kinds of family drama if you read through, and eventually David ended up running for his life again from his son. Um, and so there was a lot of still consequences, even though God had forgave him, you know, there were still a lot of consequences that he had to, had, uh, had to endure. And so, and I think something too, that we can bring that back to is like, I had talked about in Romans where it says, talked about predestination. And when you break down that verse, it says like those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of God. And I think that is something important to, to take away is that God knows ahead of time who's going to accept him, who's not. He knows who's going to, you know, do his will, who's not. But for those of us who accept him, like what he's predestined is he predestines us to become in the image, of, to be more like Christ and to, be, and to be conformed into the image of who he is. And so that's, I think that kind of comes back the full circle back to in Genesis where it talks about how we're made in his image. But then he also has predestined those of us who will accept him into conforming to his image out of our sinful nature. That's right, and um, and that's when being born again, uh, you know, many people take that out of, uh, say that, oh, well, being born again, the media has so much uh, maligned that, you know, and, and this is the problem we have today, is a lot of people listen to the media, and which don't know what it really means, and they also, in many different other areas, too. Otherwise, what I'm saying is that the, they're wanting to say they're above us. And that's why, um, 
you know, because we are so poor minded and everything else. And, and, you know, we have, as in Christianity, we have people that are, uh, in, as, as the song says, we have people in low places, but we also have people in high places. When you think about some of the brilliant people, I mentioned Hugh Ross, he's an astrophysicist. That takes a lot of work to be an astrophysicist. But there's a lot of people that are chemical engineers and mechanical engineers, et cetera. Uh, one person that was not only a, a, a scholar scholar, but was uh, Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton wrote commentaries and everything else on the Bible and studied the Bible and got into prophecy. Uh, there's many other ones like that, too. So it, it, it has a whole facet of people that God has used, and sometimes he's used some of these brilliant people just to be able to work as helps in the church, you know, coming alongside people and helping them out. And uh, maybe not being uh, somebody that's in the pulpit preaching messages or this sort of thing. So we have to understand that uh, when we, uh, uh, no matter what we do, who we are, that compared to God, we're very much uh, difficult uh, for us to understand that we're that far behind Him, but we are. And I think the other thing is, is that we've got to recognize that every soul on the face of the earth, God loves. And that we need to be sure that we're loving Him and not say, well, I'm going to talk to this person, not to that person. Uh, uh, it's not it's not acceptable, but it's you know it's easy to go to those people who have the same affinities that you have for various things with you know your background this sort of thing and things you like to talk about, and sometimes it's very difficult to go to somebody that doesn't have that. But God says go, and, and we should. And James chapter two is I think it's James chapter two is specific too about not being partial and not you know uh, not being, being partial to the the people that you reach out to as well. And, uh, like I think it talks about, um, if a poor man comes in versus a rich man and who you're going to put in the prime spot versus who you're just going to throw under the table, uh, that to not show partiality to, um, the people that you reach out to. And, and you know, it's interesting. God says this life's a vapor. So when you think about a rich man or a poor man, and they're realizing that their life is has is actually in a life of eternity. And um, you're catering to the rich guy. Well, in the concept of what God calls rich, a rich man is not rich unless, if he's not building up treasures in heaven. And the truth is that doesn't stop a rich man from doing that or a poor man from doing it because the gold that's here on earth and all these things that are meaningless when it gets when, when you come before God for judgment. And that's, uh, and so it really, um, that's like comparing, uh, uh, you know, apples to oranges when you're trying to compare the salvation message that you have in Christ to anything that's here on earth. And I think that's a good way to wrap things up is when we look at um, creation, particularly in the creation of man, um, you know, we have a verse and you probably know where it's at. I can't remember where it's at, but it says like... um, that we look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And something is interesting is when you look at uh, Jesus's baptism, um, up to that point, Jesus hadn't done any miracles. Like that was kind of the, to kick off his ministry was his baptism. But despite the fact that he didn't do anything uh, particularly great that we would consider great um, through his miracles up to that point, um, God still says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And 
when we look back at the creation account and we look at um, how we're made in the image of God, that's, and I think we talked about this last week, how that gives like ultimate value to human life. It's not about like what clothes you wear, what status you have, you know, what job you have, where you live, um, that ultimately all human life is seeing the same uh, in God's eyes that we all have value because we're all made in God's image. And I think it's just our uh, worldly um, sinful nature that ten- tries to assign value to people based on what they have or how much money they have or what status they have. I would agree with that totally, and that's why we have to do it. Uh, the Bible says there's no partiality with God, and uh, so we have to be the same way. Great. Is there anything, uh, so as we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Uh, the only thing that I would have to say at this point is uh, tell everybody to set your mind on things above of the great work that God has done for us and live your life accordingly. That's great. So as we wrap up uh, creation, uh, we've got a lot of other things that we're going to be going into, some exciting other topics. So guys, uh, continue to stay tuned, continue to follow us. Um, thanks for listening. My name's Chris, this is Wayne, and that's my take. <laughs>